know the Bible is the Word of God? How do I know that the Holy Spirit inspired the Scriptures? Every Christian needs to address these questions. Some people believe the Bible is inspiring, like some great uh, literary masterpiece like Shakespeare. Other people believe the Bible contains God's Word. Some of it's God's Word. Some people like to have red Bible, red letter Bible, so they can know what exactly it was that Jesus said because to them, that's extra special and that's straight from God. People like the so-called Jesus Seminar Scholars, which is a flagrant misnomer, do not believe that all of the Scriptures are accurate, but the parts of the Scriptures are. Then there are those who, by their preferences, minimize the rest of these scriptures. All of these positions fall short of the Bible claims, and as we will see, what the truth supports. 2 Timothy 3, verse 16 says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction. For instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect or complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. The phrase inspiration of God literally comes from a Greek word that means God breathed. All scripture is God breathed. We find further in 2 Peter 1, verse 20 no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So we see that the scripture is not written by men independently, but neither does the Holy Spirit take a, a pen and write the words himself. Instead, holy men of God were moved by the Holy Spirit. Green's literal translation has... For prophecy was not at any time born or carried by the will of man, but being born along by the Holy Spirit, holy men of God spoke. The English Standard Version reads, Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So God worked through the personality and the style of the individual writers, the prophets, the apostles, to present all scripture as his infallible message to man. Other relevant scriptures testify of the Bible as God's reliable message. In 1 Timothy, 1 Thessalonians rather, chapter 2, verse 13. The Bible says, When you received the word of God which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God. In 1 Corinthians 2, verse 13. Which things also we speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Holy Spirit, with spiritual things comparing spiritual with spiritual. And some translations say spiritual words. The New American Standard renders it, which things we also speak not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. On the last page of the last book of the New Testament, the Holy Spirit gives us the rousing 
warning. For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the prophecy of this book, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. Revelation 22, verse 18 and 19. Clearly, this book of books is no ordinary book. And whoever hears or reads this book must be careful how he approaches it and, correspond, and responds to it. I agree with John Wesley's conclusion when he wrote the following. The Bible must be the invention either of, number one, good men or angels, number two, bad men or devils, or number three, of God. Therefore, it could not be the invention of good men or angels, for they neither would nor could make a book and then tell lies all the time they were writing it, saying 3,800 times, thus saith the Lord. They couldn't say that if it was just their own invention. Number two, it could not be the invention of bad men or devils, for they would not make a book which commands all duty, forbids all sin, and condemns their souls to hell to all eternity. Therefore, the third and final option must be the case. The Bible must be given by divine inspiration. What specific forms of evidence do we have as Christians to support our contention that the Bible is God's Word? Number one, the cohesiveness of the canon. These books, now, they're nightly, nicely put together in a relatively small book today, but initially they were written as separate letters or separate books. But these books were written by 40 different individuals spread over a period of 14 to 1,500 years. Number two, the indestructibility of the Scripture. Number three, the providential preservation and proliferation of manuscripts, ancient versions, and quotations from early church writers. Number four, the fulfillment of prophecies. Number five, the scientific foreknowledge found in Scripture. Number six, the historicity of the Bible. And number seven, the transforming power of the Scriptures. Number one, cohesiveness. Only God's supervision can explain the remarkable unity and cohesiveness and continuity of these 66 books. Rene Pash writes in the inspiration and authority of Scripture at least 295 quotations or direct references to the Old Testament have been counted in the New Testament. A total of one verse out of every 22. If we add to this the 613 evident allusions to the Old Testament, in the New Testament. The proportion reaches to about 10% of the New Testament text. The discourses of Jesus and such books as Hebrews, Roman, Romans, and Revelation are literally saturated with expressions, allusions, and actual texts drawn from the Old Testament. The allusions, in fact, go back to every single book, all 39 of the Old Testament. Without Interestingly, 
one without one explicit citation from the Old Testament Apocrypha. These are the books. We've got the books and we've got the right books. And what we just notice shows that although we learn about what is specifically required of us under the New Testament, if you don't know something about the Old Testament, you're not going to be able to figure out the New Testament. Pash further explains how presenting the same truth from each writer's unique perspective highlights the authenticity of their writings. He says that four independent witnesses in court parrot syllable by syllable the same story made up of a series of complex facts. Those men would immediately be charged with collusion. Their very uniformity would make them suspect. That's why we read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, although the same basic information is being presented. It's about the three or so years of Jesus' ministry. And then what do we read about? We read about his trial. We, we read about his betrayal, his trial, trials. We read about the, the, the scourging. We read about the crucifixion. We read about his burial, his resurrection. The same basic information. We're going to read the exact same words. They didn't collude. They were inspired by the Holy Spirit. Josh McDowell and Don Stewart add in their book, Answers to Tough Questions, find 10 people from your local area who have similar educational backgrounds that all speak the same language and are all from basically the same culture. Then separate them and ask them to write their opinion on only one controversial subject, like the meaning of life. When they have finished, compare the conclusion Conclusions of these ten writers. Do they agree? Of course not. But the Bible did not consist merely of ten writers, but forty. Not in one generation, but over a period of 1,500 years. Not by authors with the same education, culture, or language, but with vastly different education. Many different cultures from three continents speaking three different languages and not one subject. Next, let's talk about the indestructibility of God's Word. Although we do not yet focus on the fulfillment of prophecy, some might argue that the perseverance of the Scriptures is itself a fulfillment of prophecy. Think of what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, verse 35. He said, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. Now, at the time, that may not have seemed like such a big prophecy, but now, 2,000 years later, the fact that we still have those very words, we know exactly what Jesus said, that's amazing. The Apostle Peter reiterated the bold claim of Isaiah 40, verse 6 through 8, when he wrote in 1 Peter 1, verse 24 and 25, All flesh is as grass, and all the glory thereof as the flower of grass, the grass withereth. And the flower falleth, but the word of the Lord abideth forever. Thousands of years later, that great truth stands. Listen to these words from Willis C. Newman. He knows that Satan has done everything in his power to try to 
eradicate this book from the face of the earth. Just as you remember Jesus said, Upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Well, what is Satan going to do? He's going to do everything in his power to destroy the church. But here it is. 2,000 years. Same thing with the word of God. He has gone to great lengths through wicked men to destroy this book. But here it is. He writes, The indestructibility of the Bible indicates it's from God. Only a very small percentage of books survive more than 25 years. Probably some, maybe everybody here has a book 25 years or older. Still fewer for 100 years. How many of us have books that are 100 years old? And then only a tiny number lasts 1,000 years. You got any books besides the Bible that are over 1,000 years old? No. Many attempts to destroy the Bible have come from various groups such as governments, the Roman Emperor Diocletian in A.D. 303, the old Soviet Union, religions like Islam, and infidels, atheists like Ingersoll and Voltaire. Of the ten Roman emperors from A.D. 64 to 324 who led persecutions against Christians, Diocletian appears to be the one who targeted Scripture like a laser. It was like one of his, if not his number one goal in life, in his rule, was to make sure that the Bible was destroyed. And so, people and Bibles were destroyed until it got to the point where, according to Eusebius, royal edicts were published everywhere, commanding that the churches be leveled to the ground and the scriptures destroyed by fire. Another writer says, multitudes, as in the Decian persecution, hasten to deny the faith and to surrender their copies of the scripture. Many more bore the most horrible tortures and refused with their latest breath to surrender the scriptures or in any way to compromise themselves. After this edict had been enforced for two years, the Roman emperor, Diocletian, made this great pronouncement. He said, I have completely exterminated the Christian writings from the face of the earth. How embarrassed he would be today if he was yet alive and could see how widely available the word of God is. Bernard Brown writes, a thousand times over, the death knell of the Bible has been sounded. The funeral procession formed the inscription cut on the tombstone and committal read, but somehow the corpse never stays put. Won't you remember that as an evidence that the Bible is the Word of God? The very fact that it's indestructible, that we still have it in its entirety. Next, providential preservation. Now this is amazing. The extent to which the Word of God has been preserved. Think about it. Have you studied these facts? Have you evaluated this information? Some people ask, well, since we don't have the original copies, you know, that Peter wrote and Paul wrote, how can we be sure that we have the precise words originally written? You ever hear that? There's a lot of uh, uneducated statements that are made like this. While we do not have the original New Testament letters, we do have, think about this, 
close to 6,000 Greek handwritten copies from 500 years to some that are over 1,900 years old. Not bound up like this, but in fragile pieces of ancient paper. We have 10,000 Latin handwritten copies. We have 10 to 15,000 handwritten copies in other ancient languages. There are 86,000 New Testament quotations from preachers who would write their sermons and their different writings quoting from Scripture in the earliest centuries of Christianity. And if we didn't have anything else, just the quotations that we still have from the early centuries, 1,500 years and older, just those quotations from Scripture would fill up all of the New Testament with the exception of, I think it's 11 scriptures. That is phenomenal. Meanwhile, what about other writings? Early secular writings that are widely accepted as authentic. And our question is, was that really what those books said? Have relatively little manuscript support. No ancient document even comes close to the textual support that we find for the New Testament. For example, Homer's Iliad. 643 copies. Compare that to the tens of thousands that we have of the New Testament. Julius Caesar's Gallic Wars, 10 copies. Eight copies of Herodotus' historical works. Eight copies of Thucydides' historical works. Uh, seven copies of Pliny the Younger's historical works. We've got tens of thousands of copies that can be compared so we can find out where those variations are and eliminate and find out where there are errors, little tiny errors in a particular manuscript because we have so many that are available and we can know exactly what is written. How about this? The fulfillment of prophecies. Prophecies are what? They're predictions that are made about the future. These are hundreds and sometimes thousands of years before they were fulfilled. Albert Edersheim, author of The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, and many other uh, highly educated Jews like uh, Edersheim, converted from Judaism to Christianity. I'm using that term loosely. Edersheim's scholarly handling of the Messianic prophecies captivates the objective reader, as he notes, notes 456 Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah. But to me, what's really interesting about this is he's quoting what Jewish rabbis have said about Old Testament prophecies that would be one day fulfilled in the Messiah. Peter Stoner science professor at Westmont College in Santa Barbara, California, examines the mathematical significance of just a portion of these prophecies. How many? Now, the number varies. Some people say around 300. Uh, Edersheim has 456. What are the mathematical pro uh, probabilities of just eight of these, by coincidence, being fulfilled in the life of one man. Well, this science professor at Westmont College decided he wanted to find, find that out. So he had his classes attempt and to find out, to calculate the probability. You know what they came up with? 
the odds of the probability for just eight of these coming together by coincidence was one in ten to the seventeenth power. Seventeenth power just means zero, zero, zero. Seventeen zeros. Not one in a million, not one in a billion, not one in a trillion. Seventeen zeros after it. Note those astronomical odds are just for eight of the hundreds of existing messianic prophecies. For one man to fulfill 48 prophecies expands the unlikelihood to 10 to the 157th power. What's neat about this is that uh, Emil Borel is an expert on probability theory. He says anytime there is less than one chance in 10 to the 50th power, then the probabilities are so small that it becomes a logical impossibility. We're talking about 48 gives you to 1 times 10 to the 157th power. Clearly, it's more rational to accept the inspiration of God's Word than to deny it. What about scientific foreknowledge? Science and the Bible are not at odds. Not true science. No. Science and the Bible work together to, in one way, show the amazing inspiration and authenticity of Scripture. While the Holy Spirit never presents the Scriptures to be a science textbook, since the Spirit does present the Bible to be a reliable source of truth, we would expect that any mention of a subject that intersects with a scientific discipline would be accurate. We see this to be the case numerous, numerous times, beginning with the first verse of the Bible that has been so heavily assaulted by Bible critics. In 1883, English philosopher, biologist, anthropologist, and sociologist Herbert Spencer, from whom Charles Darwin took the phrase survival of the fittest, identified five scientific principles by which man may study the unknown. Famous scientist. He says time, force, energy, space, and matter. Well, what's neat about this is you go back to Genesis 1, verse 1, and you find out that thousands of years earlier, he had already identified these, these five principles in the first verse of Scripture. In the beginning, time. God, force, created, energy, the heavens, space, and the earth, matter. Right there. Somebody says, wow, that Moses, he must have been a smart guy. Well, he was a smart guy, but he wasn't that smart. God inspired him clearly to put that information down in Genesis 1, verse 1. In a general introduction to the Bible, Norman Geisler and William Nix mentioned the historicity of the Bible as another source of evidence for the inspiration of Scripture. And the idea of historicity is how reliable the history is that is presented in this book. Think about it. All the information historically that's addressed here. 
While other religious books refer to a host of cities and other places that have never been verified, try this with the Book of Mormon, it doesn't work. Renowned archaeologist William Albright said, there can be no doubt that archaeology has confirmed the substantial historicity of the Old Testament tradition. Nelson Gluck adds, it may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery, think of this, they're always digging, and they've been digging and digging for many years. No archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference. Scores of archaeological findings have been made which confirm in clear outline or in exact, exact detail historical statements in the Bible. Geisler and Nix conclude, no historical discovery is a direct evidence of any spiritual claim in the Bible, such as the claim to be divinely inspired. Nevertheless, the historicity of the Bible does provide indirect verification of the claim of inspiration. Confirmation of the Bible's accuracy in factual matters lends credibility to its claims when speaking on other subjects. You know, if you uh, find out that something has been written in the National Enquirer, what do you think? Oh, wow, that information is true. No, you think that information is not true. But if there's a source that over and over again has all kinds of information from many different fields and every single time it's accurate, what does that tell you about that resource? Confirmation of the Bible's accuracy in factual matters lends credibility to its claims when speaking on other subjects. Jesus said, if I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how shall I believe, how shall you believe if I tell you heavenly things? John 3, verse 12. Finally, and most importantly, how we know that this book is not just another book and how we know that it's inspired of God is its transformative power. The ability of a book to completely change a man or a woman. I'm evidence of that, and so are you. Imagine what the Bible does. It makes violent men gentle. It makes the drunk sober. It leads those who have led very immoral lives to live lives of purity. And it brings decency to the dishonest. Think about what you would have been like without Jesus and without the teachings of this book. I made mistakes as a husband, but I, I show you to think without Jesus and without the gospel, what kind of a man, what kind of a husband, what kind of a father... I would be. Romans 1 verse 16 says, But I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Hebrews 4 verse 12 says, For the word of God is quick or alive. It's alive, powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. This book, if we let it, we don't rebel against it, we'll change a man's life. I wonder tonight.
you think back on the change that it made on the apostles, the change that it made what about the life of Saul of Tarsus. He was fighting against the church and against Christ with everything he had and became the greatest proponent outside of Jesus himself of Christianity in the first century. I want to bring our lesson to a close. If there's someone here who has not allowed the Word of God, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the gospel story to transform your life, won't you allow that to begin taking place in your life tonight? What are the steps that need to be taken? They're very simple. You must believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Jesus says, if you believe not that I am He, you shall die in your sins. You've got to repent. Jesus says in Luke 13, verse 3, except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. What is repentance? Do we know what repentance is? We've got to know it if we're going to tell other people what repentance is. It's a change of heart that leads to a change of life. You can't be the same man after we're a Christian or before. There should be a change. There must be a change. And that change is what repentance is all about. We must be wanting to confess him before men. You can't be ashamed of Jesus. Jesus says, if you're ashamed of me, Mark 8, verse 38, I'll be ashamed of you. I must confess him before men. Matthew 10, verse 32. No more beautiful words will ever come from your lips than I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God.